Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Dr. Chantal Abergel. She's at the uh, CNRS Research Center. Uh, She completed a PhD in material science in 1990 at a university that I I probably can't pronounce offhand. Uh, She was co-founder of the Structural and Genomic Information Laboratory at the CNRS with Jean Michel Clavier, Clavier, uh, to create the first French lab that combines bioinformatics with experimental biology, which makes a lot of sense. So, and now uh, she's isolating and studying families of giant viruses. And even though they're giants, I'm sure they're pretty small, but uh, we'll talk about the work there. So Chantal, thanks for coming. It's coming fine. It's perfect. Well, good. Yeah, well, tell me, um, first of all, how big are viruses in general? And what is how big is a giant virus? Oof. A tough question. And then in general, um, viruses were thought to be uh, very small. Historically, uh, they were the first virus that was isolated uh, was uh, isolated by a, a scientist who wanted to find out what was uh, causing a disease in tobacco plants. And uh, surprisingly, he filtered uh, the sample he extracted from the, the plant. And instead of isolating it on the filter, it appeared that this uh, agent pathogen was able to infect other plants while it went through the filter. So it, it was the first one was very small, passing through a 200 nanometer uh, filter. Oh wow! Now, and it was that was that tobacco mosaic virus. Exactly, and oh, that wow, was okay. a, and that was actually the first that was discovered. And because it was isolated that way, it became traditional to isolate viruses using exactly the same approach, meaning a filtering. So that way, there is no chances to get in contact with giant viruses because you always look at the, at the fractions that pass through the filters. And those giant viruses are so big that they are actually retained by the filter. Yeah, I've heard that um, a lot of viruses, you know, in the virion stage are 50 to 120 nanometers. Is that mm-hmm. accurate? And then how big are giant yeah. viruses if so? I mean, the largest uh, can go as high as two micrometer, so it's much bigger than uh, the standard viruses that were isolated previously. Wow! How much uh, genetic material do giant viruses have? If they're so big, do they have okay. tons more genetic material? Yeah, yeah, they are as complex as they are big. <laughs> they are complex on every uh, direction. The point is uh, today we're only isolated DNA viruses. Giant viruses are all DNA viruses. But their genome can go from a few hundreds of KB, kilobases, to uh, about uh, more than 2.5 million, 2.5 million base pair. So that means that they can have as many genes as uh, uh, even eukaryotic cells. So uh, it's uh, like two, for the largest, it's about 2,000 genes. So making 2,000 proteins. Yeah, I think what Mimi virus is one of the giant viruses, is that right? Yeah, that was the first, uh, Mimivirus was the first to be discovered. 
And uh, fortunately, it was an ecosahedral virus. So because of that, it, uh, the, uh, during the isolation process, it appeared immediately that it could be a virus, uh, but a giant virus. For in the case of the Pandora viruses, which are very different in terms of uh, particles of uh, shape, they are ovoid. It, it was much more complicated to, uh, to, um, to be certain that there were uh, giant viruses as well. Oh, because they would be mistaken for bacteria exactly. or protozoa or something else? Exactly. Do they have any motility or are they just free-floating? Have they been observed in the solution? Then they're not even free-floating because uh, they are so dense that they actually sediment. So no motility. Oh, no motility at all. Okay. But because they don't have that you know, traditional icosahedral head or you know, shape to their capsid, they would be much harder to recognize as a virus. Yeah, actually, they were spotted by a, a group in, in uh, Germany who uh, reported the parasite, the parasite of uh, Acanthamoeba cells, amoeba, um, but they uh, thought that it was uh, more like an archaebacteria or something like that. The, this is only when we uh, uh, studied the infectious cycle that we, uh, we convinced ourselves that there were Pandora viruses. And uh, so uh, to study viruses, I think we should be as open-minded as possible. Because uh, they break many dogma. That's true. Well, in the in the interest of being open minded as possible, do you think that viruses are alive, or at least <laughs> contingently alive, once they enter into a, a cell? Okay. The point is, I do think that uh, contribute. They contribute to the life. It is definitive. But I also think they are alive. They are part of the evolution. They are part of the life on Earth, and they are very uh, active, uh, co-evolving, actively co-evolving with the cells. So why, why giant viruses? What, what do these viruses tend to do? Why are you interested in them? Uh, why? Because they are fascinating. That's the first answer, I would say. And uh, also because uh, they have so many components which are for which we have no story at all. They are made mostly of genes of an unfunction. So uh, uh, studying them is a way to, uh, to, to prospect new metabolic pathways and uh, ask address questions such as, what was the origin of those viruses? Uh, what, what is the origin of life? Did they contribute to the life on Earth? Things like that. Do they have large enough feature sizes that it's easier to study them using uh, you know, electron microscopy or maybe not, not light microscopy? I don't know. The, the point is you're totally right. They are much easier to, to, isolate, to isolate because they are big. So you can actually see a viral particle by light microscopy, regular light microscopy. So that's very convenient because when you see that the cells are dying, you, you look at the culture medium and by light microscopy, if the particles uh, are, there are particles which are visible and no with no motility, then you are um, one step in the direction of uh, um, discovering a new virus. So have you been able to observe them you know, entering these, these are phages, they, they enter into bacteria. You said they're called Pandora viruses? In the case of all the, we, are, we have a unique cell uh, system that we are using. It's a bias, we know that, but uh, it's also a, a decision because it's much easier to, uh, to work with a, a unique uh, cell system. So those are amoeba, which are unicellular eukaryotes. So, and those viruses are actually infecting such amoeba. They all process, well, at least most of them do process exactly the same way, meaning that they, they, uh, they are mistaken by the amoeba as food, They're re the regular food of the amoeba, which is bacteria. 
And uh, so they enter, they penetrate inside the cells through phagocytosis, meaning that they are actually engulfed by the cell and that's where start the infectious cycle. Once they're engulfed, do they migrate towards the nucleus inside the amoeba or do they, does their capsid open up right away? Like what behaviors have you observed? For the four families of giant viruses that we have been isolating, isolate, that we isolated, they all remain in the phagosome and there is there a signal which is actually opening the, the capsid and you have a membrane which is inside the capsid which is unfolding and fusing with the membrane of the phagosome. And so at that point, everything that was inside the particle is transferred inside, inside the cytoplasm. This is the first step. Then the fate of what would happen depends on the infectious cycle of the, of the different family of uh, giant viruses. Some of them do not need the nucleus at all. And so because of that, they, they develop inside the cytoplasm what we call a viral fa- factory. In the case of the ones that do use the nucleus, they, you, in one case, we were able to follow the journey of the DNA from the moment it was uh, uh, transferred inside the cytoplasm to the nucleus. And once it is inside the nucleus, you can see it unfolding and allowing the transcription machinery of the cell to, uh, to start uh, uh, expressing the, the early genes of the, those nuclear viruses. That's awesome. So you can actually, can you see the, um, the packaging of new virions by the amoeba cell? Yes, we can follow that as well. I mean, you can have, a, you can spot every stage of the infectious cycle by electron microscopy, not by a regular microscopy. What you can see using light microscopy is, uh, actually, we use a trick where we, uh, we, uh, we stain the cells. We perform DAPI staining, which is a staining nucleic acids. And because of that, we are able to, to really locate the viral factory, which is really enriched in nucleic acid as soon as the replication starts. And uh, so because of that, we, have some, we are able to see if uh, uh, the, the cells are all synchronously, synchronously sorry, it's difficult to say, uh, infected. And in oh, that case, synchronously. Okay. Exactly. Thank you. And so uh, uh, then we can follow, uh, we can perform all the uh, electron microscopy study of those cells also to have a, a more, a deepest view and a more detailed view of the infectious cycle uh, all along it. This is really cool. This is a good idea to help study maybe all kinds of viruses. The, the lessons that you'll learn from doing this can apply in many places, I'm sure. I hope so. <laughs> well, um, can can you fluorescently tag, you know, I don't know, um, yeah. parts of the virus or parts of the uh, amoeba as well, and then with light microscopy, you know, overcome the limit and see more of what's going on with that electron microscopy? Yes, definitely. And there is one amazing case where we uh, we did a study uh, using such approach, uh, which is a case of, uh, uh, let's say, an intermediate in between uh, cytoplasmic viruses and uh, uh, nuclear viruses. Those are the, what the, the family of the Marseilleviridae. They are much smaller, less complex than uh, the giant viruses, but yet they are pretty complex with uh, more than uh, three and uh, almost 400 uh, genes. And uh, those ones we thought from the very beginning that they were also cytoplasmic because they encode uh, the transcription machinery. And uh, we never saw we saw that the viral factory was actually developing inside the cytoplasm. And because of that, we assumed they were cytoplasmic. 
But we use the trick, which is exactly the kind of trick you are, you are suggesting. Uh, we overexpress nuclear proteins inside the nucleus of the amoeba to address the question whether those viruses were really truly cytoplasmic. And the reason why we did that is because when we analyzed the, 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 the proteome of the virion of the capsids, uh, we found out that the transcription machinery was not inside the capsid. And because of that, we thought either they are using a completely different transcription machinery, which is inside the capsid, or they have to find a way to recruit the transcription machinery from the nucleus. And during, that, during the study of the infection, during the early stage of the infection, we were able to, to, to see the proteins which were inside the nucleus, those fluorescence proteins, we were able to see them leaving the nucleus to go to, to the viral factory. And as soon as a, about, let's say, three hours later, later, probably the transcription machinery was already produced, the virally encoded one, and at that stage, the nucleus went back to normal. And this is only the protein that left, that left the nucleus. The DNA of the host was always confined inside the nucleus. So, oh, that's so amazing. It, yeah, it is. And I think in terms of evolution, it's, it's really uh, very interesting because that suggests that uh, you can, uh, the most likely is that viruses were fully independent originally from the cell nucleus, but became more and more dependent as soon as they were uh, losing genes in a process which is common to parasites, which is they randomly lose some genes and at some point become more dependent from the cell. And witnessing uh, such an event uh, uh, that you can have viruses that are intermediating between cytoplasmic and nuclear is kind of a demonstration of the way they evolve. Yeah, there's, huh. I mean, there's a lot of things you could do. This is interesting. Um, some things I thought of is, uh, I guess I've never thought about it, but there's probably some, you know, nucleus to cytoplasm signaling, you know, stuff channeling back and forth. I know that that happens, but I wonder what the signaling is. Uh, that's one thing. And then, you know, uh, if you have a bunch of amoeba and you infect, can, can you just infect one of them with this virus or you have to just put a whole bunch in and they start spreading throughout the colony? Yeah, the point is... Uh... Traditionally, when we start with an environmental sample, we never know how many viral particles are in there, and sometimes there are very few of them. So in that case, you have uh, you probably uh, uh, you will start with, uh, let's say, one viral particle that will then propagate all along to the other cells. So very likely, at some point, you have uh, one cell infected by one virus, and that will produce hundreds of new particles that will propagate the infection all around. Well, can you, since the Pandora virus is so big, yeah. can you just have one Pandora virus with oh, one okay. amoeba and see what happens? Okay. Yes, we do that also. Um, but actually, um, no, we, we do not do, do single cell analysis because we are not equipped to do, to do such things. But what we do usually is we, uh, we kind of clone uh, the viruses by taking by putting viruses in the culture medium and isol isolating one cell, uh, many, many times one cell, to the point where we will have only one cell in the, in the world. And later, we add fresh cells to uh, look at the difference in between the different clones, if any, and to separate the population of viruses that could have been in the environmental sample originally. But now we wanted to do uh, some... Um, 
single cell an analysis, but that would not be possible by electron microscopy. As far as I know, it's not possible to, to, uh, to do such things right now, because usually what we do is we uh, perform inclusion. So we take a pellet of cells, and this is this pellet of cells that will be uh, uh, observed by electron microscopy. So you have many, many cells. But since the virus and the amoeba are large enough to see under light microscopy, that, you, know, yeah, you, you probably won't you won't learn the chemistry, but why not observe them, you know, one one amoeba, one virus macroscopically, observe it under light microscope and just see what you see. Uh, yeah, but you can also do that if you have uh, a population of cells. You can look at each one after another and you can see actually the viruses not that easily when it's the start of the infection where you have only one particle per cell. It's tricky, I would say, and not uh, the enlargement is not enough, I would say. But and and you can actually mistake the the virus for my, mitochondria, which is about the same size, so it's very difficult for that reason also. And uh, once at the end of the infectious cycle, definitely you can see the population of viral particles which are inside the cells, and you can recognize them. I mean, it's very uh, fascinating to see that. And you have then two different types of viruses: the ones that will explode the cell or lyse the cell, and you have the ones that uh, will. Uh, exit by uh, exocytosis. And that is amazing to witness as well, because you, 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 we have movie where we, we, are, we are recorded the exocytosis, where you can see the particle budding and going away from the cell. So as you said, because they are large, you can still catch some events uh, which are amazing to watch. Oh, so in some cases, instead of lysing the cell, the virions will well, they'll become packaged in, in membranes or they'll migrate to exactly. the edges of the amoeba cell. Exactly. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it would be interesting if, um, let's say you had a population of amoeba and you introduced, you know, the virus on one end and then maybe you were able to, ta you know, to look at the amoeba on the other end on a time lapse, you know, after a minute or 10 minutes, 20 minutes and see if there's anything going on with the ones on the other side, if they're getting signaling from the ones that okay. are being infected. Yeah, it's just yeah. an idea. I don't know. It's a very good question, actually. It's, uh, some of our colleagues did actually uh, study that. He produced an, an infection on uh, amoeba, amoeba cell and recovered the, the culture medium, uh, separated the culture medium from the cells, and then put this culture medium onto fresh cells that never saw the virus to, um, to study uh, how, if it was a signal in, in there. And interestingly, it appears that there is some, some signaling in between the cells. But um, in laboratory condition, we work usually with very high MOI, multiplicity of infection, meaning many particles per cells, to get to end that the infection will continue because uh, we are interested in... Um, we didn't do such thing. What we wanted to do, for example, is uh, uh, performing a transcriptomic study of the infection, so meaning extracting the the mRNA from the cells and uh, and then try to find out what was down-regulated or up-regulated in the case of the amoeba on one side. And on the other hand, look at the, the, the differentially expressed genes on the virus the side to be able to identify the, the early genes from the intermediate and the late ones. Yeah, I was also picturing, you know, what if you have just one amoeba cell with like 50 you know, giant viruses around it. Is it, does it think it's a feeding frenzy and it eats a whole bunch of them? And then it says, uh-oh, or does it eat one? And then it mm. stops or does it, do the, 
you know, the other viruses just bump up against its membrane and just sit there until it eats them. I mean, you know, again, it's, it's this macroscopic behavior as well that might give you clues as to what you're doing too, what to look for. Of course, and you are, this is true. And uh, we actually, depends on the viruses we are working with. In some cases, like for the mimiviruses, uh, it can happen that you have more than one uh, particle that will be engulfed in the same times. And you can even have some uh, independent events of engulfment from the same cell. So you can find at the end few uh, viral particles inside a larger vacuole. But in most cases, it appears, and I would suspect, I'm working on such things also, but I would suspect that there is a signaling as soon as the virus penetrates or some viruses inside the cell, it changes immediately the, the parameter or the metabolism of the cell to stop it to uh, to ingest anything else. So uh, if, you, if, if you put many viruses all together in the medium, then it can happen that many viruses will be engulfed in the same time by, by the same cell. But if you put much less mat- uh, viral material inside the, the culture medium, then the most likely would be for you to find one virus. And if you try to, to reinfect with another virus or another family of viruses, then there is kind of an exclusion phenomenon, which is probably uh, uh, initiated by the viral infection. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Is anyone in your lab or uh, are they studying the giant virus itself, like trying to infect it with other viruses? <laughs> we don't have to. That? Yeah, of course. We don't have to uh, to, to try because uh, we actually, it does happen that we uh, isolate giant viruses with their associated virophages. And uh, so there is, a, in the case of the Mimiviridae, uh, we have we performed a study a study which is fascinating I think in terms of uh, uh, ecology and uh, what happened in the in the in the environment because we not only those giant viruses can get infected by a virus those as I said are virophages but obviously you know about them but they can also be found associated with a, a selfish DNA which are about uh, more like plasmid-like, but they are viral as well. And those are called transpoviron. So you can have a menage à trois <laughs> and even four between the cell, the giant virus, the virophage who can uh, uh, infect the viral factory and the transpoviron, which is also replicated by, uh, by the, gi- the giant virus viral factory. But the transpoviron can be propagated by the giant virus inside the capsid and also by the virophage. So the virophage can help transmitting the transpoviron to other giant viruses. Wait a minute. So the transpoviron? What did you call it? Transpoviron. Okay. Is it, so is it just a naked piece of DNA that, that is membrane enclosed or does it have its own capsid? Or, and when does it come out and where? It is not a naked DNA in the sense that, uh, yes, it doesn't have a capsid. It uses the capsid of the giant virus and of the of the virophage, but it is not totally naked. We did perform the proteomic study of the virophage and of the giant virus that were carrying each of them the same transpoviron, and you actually can see that inside the capsid, those those DNA are associated with a specific protein, depending if they are loaded with the giant viruses or with the uh, the virophage. So there is really something. Uh, specific uh, in the association of the transpoviron with 
the vehicle he wants to use to propagate. But does this only happen when the um, when the Pandora virus is inside an amoeba, or can it happen when it's in the virion stage? Now, I no. guess they're not usually moto, so it's just mm-hmm. all this happens only when it's inside a host, right? Exactly, you're totally right. It only happens those exchanges do exist in between the the inside the host. They have to occur inside the host and host. And what is pretty interesting also is uh, this is an article which was published uh, at the end of 2019. Uh, you you can actually perform competition experiment using different transpovirons inside the cell and and see what happens. And what appear, appears is um, when a giant virus is associated to a transpovirin, there is an exclusion phenomenon that will completely forbid the replication of the incoming transpovirin. Only the one which is associated to the giant virus will be replicated. But if you, uh, you infect the cell with a giant virus that do not have any transpovirin and use a virophage to bring in the transpovirin, then this giant virus will become transpovirin positive. Weird. Yeah, I don't know. This is crazy. Um, Are there any other giant viruses that aren't phagocytosed, but that fuse to the membrane of their host? Or is is this the only one we found? uh, I think in the case of the viruses of amoeba, they all use this uh, specific entry. But in nature, you have other systems. Like, uh, for example, uh, in the case of um, uh, unicellular uh, cells that can be seen in uh, in the ocean, in Cafeteria Weinbergensis, for example. It's a complicated name, but it's a, a cell. And uh, this unicellular cell can get infected by a giant viruses, uh, giant virus, which most likely perform transfer what is in the capsid using a system pretty close to the one of bacteriophage. And there is even another case, which are the chloroviruses, viruses infecting algae, which actually stick inside the membrane of the cell that you that you want to penetrate in. Uh, they generate a change in the membrane that will swallow if you t- increase the pressure, and so that way uh, allow the, the the genome to get inside the cell very fast. So you have other processes which are used, and probably there are many others that we didn't see yet. So. Um, so you, you can imagine also that you could have a membrane fusion at the external side of the cell, even if we never got that yet. That it's, to me, it seems a little bit complicated to fuse, much more complicated to fuse with the membrane of the phagosome than with the membrane of the cell. But maybe there is a good reason for that, which is uh, probably that, uh, that way the viruses are protected inside the vacuole. And also, they need probably also a signal, and this signal is easily provided by the vacuole, which has specific uh, uh, condition in terms of pH, oxidative stress, and things like that. Well, have you have you tried to um, take the virion when it's inside of a vacuole, or um, I forget what you call it when it's initially phagocytosed? Do you still call it a vacuole, or what do you call it? What is it in? Yeah, it's a, it's a vacuole. We call it vacuole just because it's a, a okay. limited by a membrane. But it's a, it, at some point, sphagosome is usually contains all the enzymes which are able to degrade what was inside. And obviously, uh, the particles are not degraded, so uh, it's not exactly a phagosome. Even if the process, the initial process, is probably phagocytosis, but it's just a matter. Oh, of phagosome. Of okay. Sorry. Have, have uh, you been able? Okay, so, so we have tried, you tried to isolate. 
once it's in a phagus home, like, you know, isolated right then and there before it gets out? Yeah, well, the first thing we tried, and um, we actually, um, I wanted, I am deeply convinced that if we are able to recover nucleoid, which is inside the, the virion that contains the DNA and probably all the transcription machinery of mimivirus, for example, I'm pretty convinced that if I'm putting that in a, an in vitro system would allow the replication of the virus because it has many, many things except translation. So in the case of mimivirus, I wanted really to do that. And so I wanted to you. We were never able to um, to uh, purify the vacuole, probably because uh, we didn't try enough. But uh, as a proof of principle, I wanted to uh, get the amoeba feeding some uh, feeded by magnetic beads to be able then to recover the vacuoles just using a, a magnet. So we tried that using magnetotactile bacteria. The idea was uh, the, the cell would uh, would feed on the bacteria. They are magnetic, so which means that using a magnet, we once they are in the vacuole, we should be able to recover the vacuole and then analyze the composition of the vacuole to be able to reproduce an opening of the particles alone in a specific medium. But uh, that failed. It's uh, right now. I don't have anybody. Uh, yeah, I think so, uh, and I think it could have worked. And. Uh, I mean, uh, you can, you, there is, uh, for example, such things have been uh, performed for um, Dictyostelium, which is another, another amoeba, uh, to study the proteomic composition of the uh, vacuoles, of the phagosome, exactly. Um, Not the magnetic, magnet, directly magnetic bits. Are you able to create a, um, a Pandora virus virion, just the capsid part, and, you know, that's empty inside? Is that possible? Uh, no. Oh really? Okay. I don't know. know if you could isolate just the uh, the capsid part because if you could, it would be interesting if you feed that to the amoebas and see what happens. There's nothing inside of it, you know, or maybe it's uh, the sequence is compromised, and then see what happens. Yeah, the the problem with those particles is they are very very resistant, and the almost the only way to open them up is to degrade them. So you have also to use proteases to be able to uh, to fragilize the capsid, and so you are never able to recover an intact empty capsids. We were not yeah, but yet inside able the, to. Uh, but inside the phagosome, I mean, the capsid is opening. Is, is it being yeah. degraded inside there, or is it opening? It is an opening, as I said. But, uh, oh. but as so I said, some instruction. There's some binding site. There's some receptor then on some part of the capsid that is being signaled and then the thing opens up, you know, like a Rubik's cube or something. I, I, the pro, the, I think it's uh, more than one signal. So you have a, a pH factor, which is very important. Uh, the low pH is a triggering, but not alone. It is needed to open the, the capsid. Uh, a colleague also uh, tried to use um, pH 2, eat high ionic strains, and also heating at 100 degrees, and that way he was able to open up the, uh, the particles. But uh, 100 degrees, I think, is a, has a, a bad effect on, uh, on, uh, on the particle on one side. And uh, But probably doing this, you could do what you propose to do, meaning that uh, they open up, and so you can recover eventually the capsid and try to see what happens uh, once when, when you, we, you, you use those empty capsid to feed the amoeba. Okay. There is also probably a proteolytic cleavage, pretty specific, that uh, do uh, trigger the change in uh, the opening of the particles. 
In the case of uh, Pitovarus, which is actually the, the one that has uh, the most beautiful uh, mouse of all the family of giant viruses, it's like a cork, but it has uh, an, an hexagonal array that makes it look like a honeycomb array, and which is actually the cork closing the particle. And uh, we saw actually that there is something clearly happening there as soon as the particle gets into the vacuole, you can see the change of the cork. And for me, it's not only just chemical, it has to be some proteolytic signal as well. Yeah, you know, if you, this is a whole different way of thinking about viruses. I mean, essentially, they're like little locks. If you can figure out how to get them to open up before they enter a cell, I mean, then you don't have to block them. They'll just open up and then they're in trouble. You know, their contents will spill out. I mean, so it's huh, interesting. Yeah, it is totally true. And if you are opening them up, it's over for them. Except, as I said, the fact that if you provide them with a ribosome in the case of the mimiviruses, I'm pretty sure that they will give you back new particles. Yeah, that's why it'll be really cool to see the packaging of new virions too, how they're made, you know, how the sausage is made, essentially. I don't know. I mean, you know, we, everyone says what, they're made inside the, the cell, but I don't know if anyone's observed it. Oh, yes, we did in very um, big detail. Uh, in okay. the case of uh, the poor families we have been working on, you can see how it uh, it starts. And for uh, all of them, I mean, uh, for each of them, they do use different uh, ways to, to, to synthesize the capsid and to package uh, inside the capsid uh, what is needed. So so all of them do recycle the membrane from the cell to be able to build their own membrane. And this is central to the assembly as well. So the membrane is probably the seed of the, uh, uh, of the assembly for the proteins that will make the capsid. And then you have uh, different processes depending on, the, in the case, for example, of virus, it starts with a kind of a, a membrane vesicle that will, on which the protein are starting to accumulate. And uh, this one is making a spheric particle. In the case of Pandora viruses, it's an ovoid particle. By a, it's like you have open membranes, and so you can see really the, the building of the of the particle from a, a tiny spot to the entire sphere being made or to the entire ovoid being make, made. And same thing with the, uh, the Ecosadral viruses. You can see them budding in the periphery of the viral factory. Start use use first recognize, uh, let's say a, fl- a flat. Uh, Face and uh, the assembly progresses. It goes to the full icosahedral uh, capsid being made, but still empty. And then you can look and see because the uh, nucleic acids are pretty dense, electron dense by electron microscopy. You can even see the DNA coming inside the capsid. And in the case of the mimiviruses, the last stage is uh, is uh, really how they can get the the fibril which are surrounding the capsid and making them look larger and give them their sweet taste that fool the amoebas that think that it's going to eat the bacterium. So um, you, you really can follow all those events. We don't have the, uh, an answer on whom or which proteins are responsible for all of this. Some of them we know, some we don't know. But, but when looking at, at the, uh, the assemblies, is something you can do using those viruses. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really cool. It makes a lot of sense for you to study these things because you'll be able to see and get a hint of what's going on in smaller versions yeah. or different versions of viruses. 
is true. So what do you hope to figure out in the next few years with your research? Particularly, what are you uh, looking at and want to discover? I do think that there is a, a, a question which needs to be addressed. On uh, And I, I started already, we started to work on that. We do think that uh, those viruses could be eventually a reservoir to discover new metabolic pathways, which I think is a very interesting, both in terms of uh, fundamental uh, knowledge and in terms of uh, possible application. Because you know, as I do, as everybody does, what viruses are good at is hijacking the cell and taking the control of uh, all the processes which are going on inside a cell. But so on the fundamental level, I do uh, think that those viruses, uh, different families of viruses are so different from each other that I doubt that they, are, I, they have a common origin. I do think that uh, they did coexist all together. Their ancestors did coexist all together and coexisted with the cell or what, what should become the cells at some point. And uh, all those type of interaction taught viruses to take the best out of the cells they are uh, infecting. So I do also think that uh, uh, at the beginning of uh, life, many alternative strategies uh, did coexist all together in terms of, uh, let's say, uh, metabolism or even uh, uh, nucleic acid uh, uh, building or enzyme, enzyme from nucleic acid, ribozyme, stuff like that. So you know all those debates about the origin of life, what was first, metabolism first, or nucleic acid first, RNA world. Though my point is I don't think that it, the answer is uh, one or the other. I do think that all those alternative uh, premises did happen all together and were strategies that were in parallel and got to come in competition. And at some point, I, uh, they learn to, uh, to uh, coexist and co-evolve. And every time a big step in evolution was to occur, it's because one system was able to adapt to, with the other system to produce something which was just much better. And I think the viruses are the loser of evolution in the sense that they were not able to perform as well as what was going to, to, to lead to Luca. But they learn, they learn to communicate with the cell and to co-evolve with the cells and had no choice at some point to become a parasite of the cells to take profit of uh, those big changes that uh, led to the cells. So because of that, I think that those metabolic pathways that we may discover may teach us some lesson on uh, the things which are originally uh, different in between viruses and cells. Well, what's the best way for people to find out more? Can you have pictures or videos of any of the microscopy you've done? You know, amoebas eating the viruses, the viruses blowing them open and stuff. We, we have videos of, uh, of uh, phagocytosis. No, definitely not. We have electron microscopy images of all stages. Uh, there is also an article that was... Uh, uh, a review article on the four families of giant viruses. There are, there are many articles that can be uh, read uh, on giant viruses, definitely, and the review in particular that uh, give uh, some insight into some detail of their uh, infectious cycle. But uh, we, of course, I do have plenty of images. Usually, uh, they are published also, so they are accessible. 
I know articles are mostly open access articles, so which means that everybody can uh, download them and read them. Okay, I'll, I'll ask you to uh, for some links that we can put in the show notes, but that's great. So, Chantal, thanks for coming, and uh, the stuff you're working on is really cool. Very interesting, and I uh, appreciate you being here. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.